I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we explore the constitutional dimensions of the military prison at Guantanamo Bay. This week, the U.S. commemorates the 15th anniversary of the terrorist attacks in New York City on September 11, 2001. The first detainees captured during the War on Terror arrived at Guantanamo just a few months later on January 11, 2002. Since then, the legal status of the individuals held there and the ability of the president to close the prison unilaterally have been the subject of heated debate. Joining me to share perspectives on this. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Wonderful. Well, I want to begin with the latest news. On August 15th, Pentagon officials announced that they transferred 15 Guantanamo detainees to the United Arab Emirates, which is the largest single transfer of Gitmo detainees of the Obama administration. Um, I want to begin with you, John. Uh, do you believe that this unilateral transfer of detainees is legal or not? Well, Jeff, thanks for having me on. And I'd like to say first, as you know, we're approaching the 15th anniversary, the September 11th attacks. Uh, this is, couldn't be a more timely podcast uh, because the Guantanamo base was um, created soon after September 11th. And uh, yeah, as you know, I was at the Justice Department on that day and the day, months after, years after, and I worked on the location of the Guantanamo Bay base, amongst other many other things I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, I think that the president does have the authority uh, to transfer prisoners uh, of war anywhere that are held by the U.S. Uh, within his powers commander-in-chief. The one qualification is uh, the funding power. Uh, Congress has the power under Article I, uh, Section 8, to fund uh, the military, and it has used that power over the years to place conditions on how the president can use those funds. I think it's a hard question if the president tried to uh, transfer prisoners in a direct, uh, and directly to directly contravene a spending ban by Congress. However, I think Congress hasn't tried to prevent the president from transferring uh, enemy prisoners held at Guantanamo Bay to other countries. What he's what it's done is tried to prevent him from transferring prisoners from Guantanamo Bay into the United States. And so far, none of these, as far as I understand, so far these uh, transfers that President Obama's engaged in, which have draw, draw, brought the population of Guantanamo Bay down several hundreds since he's left office, uh, have, he hasn't tried to bring them to the United States. He's brought, sent them abroad. I think the harder questions are uh, whether uh, there are certain kinds of informational requirements that the president consult with or inform uh, inform Congress when he's about to release people. There's arguments about whether he com he's complied with those when it came down to uh, prison, uh, uh, prisoner trade or prisoner release that had to do with the uh, Bo Bergdahl case. Another hard question, um, I think, is uh, the larger question whether uh, people should be held at Guantanamo Bay at all. I, I certainly think it was constitutional, but there were many people who didn't and who brought a case all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, to try to stop. And then a third important question is whether we're releasing them uh, too quickly or to places that are unsecure. Uh, the Department of Defense has uh, argued that anywhere from, the numbers vary, it's hard to get exact figures, but uh, anywhere from 
maybe 20 to 25% of people who've been released from Guantanamo Bay have been detected fighting uh, back in the battlefield, either against us or our allies or in the Syrian civil war. And so there's this argument that's worth you know, whether we have released too many too fast or to the wrong places. Um, fascinating. Thank you for that very helpful summary of some of the issues that we uh, will discuss. Karen, let's uh, focus on the constitutional issues and, and build up to the broad uh, question of whether the president can close Guantanamo unilaterally. But John mentioned a congressional law that bans the transfer of detainees to the United States, which basically keeps the prison open. Do you believe that that congressional ban is constitutional or not? Well, the ban is con is constitutional. The question is, can is not a constitutional issue. It's a political issue. Can Congress, uh, if the detainee population continues to dwindle at the fast pace that it is dwindling, so that you really only have a couple dozen detainees less, is Congress really going to? approve spending what's estimated to be 10 or 11 million dollars per detainee once the de once the population decreases to several to a couple dozen is congress going to still want to say that they can't be transferred uh, to this country and i think that in part whether it's realistic or not the obama white house is banking on the fact that that price tag will eventually prove too to too high. Um, and I think that in terms of their being transferred to other countries, um, the recidivism rates that John referred to, and he, as he said, which is accurate, are all over the place. We, we don't really know. But remember that there's always been um, the idea of releasing prisoners from uh, from Guantanamo Bay from the very beginning. The Bush administration released uh, over 500 of them. Um, the Obama administration has released uh, almost 200. And the, it's a, it's a, it makes sense that as time goes forward, that legislators and others begin to think of Guantanamo not as a forever holding cell, but as a place where um, this is not the way to deal with a threat from 15 years ago which is, you know, it's, we're coming on the 15th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, thanks for that. So, John, as Karen says, the uh, president may be banking on Congress's uh, unwillingness to continue to fund Guantanamo, but what do you believe that he has the constitutional authority to close it unilaterally? You've written uh, that executive overreach has already become a staple of the administration's policies on health care, immigration, education, and welfare, but to close down Guantanamo in defiance of Congress's clear, explicit, and repeated ban on the use of Defense Department funds to transfer prisoners to the United States would cross into a frontier of lawlessness never before reached by any president. Tell us more about why you believe that that closing of Guantanamo unilaterally would be unconstitutional and how that reconciles with your defense of unilateral action earlier uh, after 9-11. Oh, yes, it's a, it's a great question, Jeff. I, first, let me say that uh, I am a big supporter of presidential power abroad and to fight a war. Uh, or to protect the national security. And that, that was the main theory, as you mentioned, that the Justice Department, when I was working there, uh, rested most of the claims for the creation of Guantanamo Bay in the first place. You know, when the 9-11 attacks happened uh, and the United States started to capture people in Afghanistan, there was no specific congressional law 
about Guantanamo Bay being used as a facility. The only thing that was out there was the authorization to use min uh, military force, which is actually still the main statute that the Obama administration is relying on even uh, today to conduct its fight against terrorism in Libya and Syria and Iraq. So I think that the president can decide as commander-in-chief where to move uh, the prisoners. But Congress has the power to create the military bases and to dispose of the property of the United States and to regulate them. And so we have, even within the United States, all kinds of military bases that the president says he doesn't want, you know, that the Defense Department uh, says are excessive, you know, a waste of money or, or, or excessive, you know, or excessive for our need, military needs. Yet the bases stay open because Congress's power of appropriation is an absolute what we call plenary power. And so the president, I think this is the this is the funny thing. I think the president could uh, say, I want to move all the prisoners out of the base, and that's within his authority as commander in chief over prisoners of war. But I think that. Congress can say, we're going to keep the military base open at Guantanamo Bay, and we're not going to fund any other kind of facility where you could move them. So President Obama, I think, is entitled to try to reach deals with other countries and move those abroad. But I think if he were to say, even though Congress has cut off funds, I'm going to do it anyway, I think that would cross the line. As I said in that piece you quoted, I don't think any president other than uh, – in modern times, other than President Nixon has ever claimed this presidential authority to actually refuse to spend funds Congress has appropriated in a statute. I think that would be crossing a kind of constitutional red line, and that's why I think uh, Obama has been very careful not to bring the, any of the detainees into the U.S. because that would break a clear congressional funding ban. Congress also, keep in mind, has been trying – to avoid a confrontation by, it could have, but did not say President Obama can't transfer them abroad using federal funds. It could have, but it's left him this escape route. Also, I just want to respond to one thing. It's certainly quite true that uh, release of people from Guantanamo Bay has been a historical uh, goal, and it's certainly appropriate in cases. My point, and, and, it's certain, and I think actually President Bush has also, also released uh, detainees who've gone back into fighting. I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, I think unfortunately that we haven't done a great job in identifying who to release from Guantanamo Bay if we've got about a quarter or so or tw or one out of five are going back into fighting um, under both the Bush and Obama administrations because I think they both felt that it was a diplomatic problem to have Guantanamo Bay and they wanted to get rid of the problem, but the cost has been that we have over-released. We've released people that have gone back into the fight. It's not like criminal law. I think that's the whole point of Guantanamo Bay and the power of the president to detain as uh, pursuant to his war powers. Is that this is not criminal law. It's not like, well, we let some people go who serve their time and then some of them uh, get caught for other crimes. I mean, that's not the point of holding people during wartime. The idea of holding people in wartime is to hold them so they don't go back into fighting. You don't try them for a crime and then you release them all when the fighting's over. Thank you very much for that. So, Karen, John has drawn an interesting distinction. He says that pres the president could uh, transfer all the detainees to other countries, but Congress could keep the base open by refusing to defund it. Do you agree with that distinction, or do you take the broader position that the holding of detainees at Guantanamo itself violates the Constitution? Well, I mean, there's two things. One is keeping the base open, and other is keeping the prison facility open. 
there has been some discussion of you know, whether or not we would, the United States would give back uh, Guantanamo Bay to Cuba. I don't think those conversations have, have gone anywhere, but that's very different than saying to close uh, the, the prison facility itself. So I do think that the prison facility uh, could be closed. I, I want to just re- respond to a few of the issues that uh, John raised. One was talking about keeping prisoners of war during time of war. One of the biggest problems with understanding Guantanamo and its its evolution has been that, and John knows this from memos that he wrote in the Justice Department, was that and and that others um, you know agreed upon was that prisoner of war status was not granted to the detainees. And that's actually one of the the biggest issues uh, and has been a big issue since January 11th, 2002, when Guantanamo Bay detention facility opened, because they're in a, in a, a limbo state, which is they are not prisoners of war. They were declared enemy combatants with sort of very amorphous um, rules and regulations surrounding them, and they're still in that kind of limbo. It's one thing to say that they're not criminals and so shouldn't be tried by the normal criminal process. Um, It's another thing to say they should never be released because we're in a a never-ending war, apparently, in the war on terror. And when you talk about costs and what this uh, John referred to costs and he referred to two kinds of costs you know one was financial uh, and the other was sort of cost in terms of US uh, reputation um, when you talk about the cost of making it apparent to the world that we don't trust our criminal justice system to try and uh, put away people that are um, suspected of terrorism that seems to me a cost to uh, America's reputation that goes to the heart of its constitutional order um, and its judiciary. So I think it really depends on how you think about what the costs are both behind us and going forward. Thanks for that. Uh, John, let's just focus on the, 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 the core constitutional issue, which is the, 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 the legal status of the detainees who are held at Guantanamo. In the Boumediene case from 2008, the Supreme Court said that Congress's decision in the Military Commissions Act of 2006 to remove the federal court's jurisdiction to hear habeas corpus applications who have been designated enemy combatants was not an adequate substitute for the habeas corpus writ, and it was an unconstitutional suspension of the writ. Uh, I'm thrilled to share with uh, We the People listeners that the interactive constitutions uh, debate on the suspension clause will soon be live. You can watch for it, and it's just a great discussion by our two leading scholars about uh, what the suspension clause means. John, do you believe, uh, and I'll just preview it by saying uh, Amy Barrett, on behalf of the Federalist Society, agrees with the dissenters in the Boumediene case that uh, the court uh, should not have, that the court overreached, and Neil Katyal, on behalf of the American Constitution Society, defends the Boumediene case because the court was balancing three factors, the citizenship and status of the detainees, the nature of the sites of apprehension and detention, and the practical obstacles in resolving the prisoner's entitlement to the writ. John, do you, be, do you believe Boumediene was uh, correctly decided or not, and what do you think that the uh, access of the detainees to the habeas corpus writ should be? I don't think uh, the decision was correct, and I think it has to do with some of the issues that you still hear uh, echoed in Karen's last comments. I think it's worth going back 
to thinking about what was the main criticisms of Guantanamo Bay back under the Bush years. And the main criticism, and it really gets uh, encapsulated in the Boumediene case, was that the people we were detaining were not prisoners of war. They were not enemy combatants. The, the distinction, at least in my mind, was that people who fight against the U.S. are enemy combatants. People who are covered by the Geneva Conventions are prisoners of war. People like the Taliban and al-Qaeda were not fighting and were not signing, were not fighting according to the rules of Geneva. So they were this broader group of enemy combatants who were entitled to less rights in my mind. That's one thing. But people who criticized that view thought that the federal courts or the criminal justice system should be in charge of trying all of these people, that they were really criminals and that they would they should have the protections of the Bill of Rights and should have lawyers and Miranda warnings and everything. And part of that attack then was to say, well, we're going to use the habeas corpus right to try to uh, get them out of Guantanamo Bay and tried in a federal court. Now, what the now the majority, at least, I think everyone in Boumediene in these series of cases, at least to the extent they've gone to the Supreme Court, in the end agreed that yes, the United States could hold these people as enemy prisoners, that they didn't have to be classified as criminal defendants, uh, that they weren't going to receive you know, the standard Bill of Rights protections and criminal justice system rights you see on law and order, for example. Um, but at the same time, I think the court was wrong in extending its reach too far. Of course, it was reaching a kind of compromise. I thought that the way the law was at the time that the Supreme Court decided the first set of cases was that the habeas corpus right, at least to the extent extent to non-citizens, doesn't reach beyond the territory of the United States, and that there were these cases after World War II. You know, the thing, well, I was a young lawyer in the Justice Department trying to figure out this question, and so we look at these cases from the end of World War II, and they, there are cases brought by Japanese and German prisoners who are held abroad after World War II, many years after World War II, and the Supreme Court in those cases said, you don't get the writ of habeas corpus. You're held as an enemy prisoner, you were captured in a war, you're not a U.S. citizen, and you're being held in Germany or Japan. No right to habeas corpus. Uh, Congress agreed. Now, the Supreme Court decided this case essentially three times, and each time they said, uh, no, we think the jurisdiction of the courts over habeas corpus extends to Guantanamo Bay. It's not just me that was dissenting or the justices, the four justices in Boumediene. Congress dissented. This was a remarkable case where the D.C. Circuit several times held that there was no jurisdiction over these cases. The Supreme Court then intervened and said, yes, go hear those cases. And then Congress actually tried to overrule the Supreme Court several times, twice, in fact, they tried to overrule. I think this is remarkable. I'd never actually seen a case like this. And I think it shows actually how determined these five justices in the Boumediene majority were to have their way, despite the views of what I would thought would have been the representatives of majority of the people and of the uh, of the lower courts, which were reading the same uh, precedents that we had been reading in the Supreme Court. So I, I, now, at the same time, in the re in reality, I think the Supreme Court likes it this way because even though it has ordered the lower courts to extend habeas corpus to Guantanamo Bay, the lower courts have yet to order the release of any of the detainees at Guantanamo using this habeas corpus. Right, the cases have been uh, moving up and down. Uh, down the federal lower federal courts and have never actually gotten back up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has never really said what clear standards are to be used by lower courts to review them. I think so. The, I think the Supreme Court actually created quite a big uh, mess 
uh, in order to try to reach this kind of compromise and saying, oh, yes, it is a war. They are prisoners. They can be held by the government. They don't need to have a trial in federal court. But on the other hand, we want to have federal courts review something at some point under the writ of habeas corpus. So I thought that part was a mistake. Thank you for that. Uh, Karen, so as John says, the status of uh, habeas corpus is now being contested in the lower courts. Uh, the New Yorker reported recently that from 2008 to mid-2010, federal district judges considered 53 Guantanamo habeas petitions and granted 38 of them. Generally, when detainees won, the Defense Department pushed justice to appeal the decisions. The majority of cases, uh, once they reached the D.C. Circuit, which was dominated by conservative judges, were overturned, and uh, a Law Review article notes that after almost 10 years of litigations, many commentators condemned the D.C. Circuit for potentially violating Boumediene's holding. So just step back and tell us what you think of the Boumediene case, just to remind our listeners, uh, Article uh, 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, uh, which defines the power of Congress, says the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. So Congress has the power to suspend the writ. What is the relevance of Congress's recent power uh, efforts to uh, uh, attempt to suspend it? And do, do you think Boumediene was rightly decided or not? Yeah, well, I I, I think Boumediene was rightly decided for a lot of reasons. One is, as John referred to, it was one in a series, the most powerful in a series of decisions by the Supreme Court, where they were clearly disturbed by the lack of um, protections and rights that were given to the Guantanamo detainees, and they were pushing the conversation and pushing the law to have them be able to contest their detention one way or another. But what happened, this is not so much about Congress, what you've raised right now, but about what John referred to as a court, the courts having their own fight, because it is true that the 38 cases that were found, that were um, listened to by the D.C. courts and then overturned by the D.C. Circuit Court, basically saying, we don't care what Boumediene said. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court said. We're listening to these cases. We're looking at this evidence, and we don't buy it. And so effectively, it was as, as if Boumediene had not been decided, and that's where we stand right now. And that is an issue of how the judiciary has been handling the detainee cases from the very beginning in a way that is politicized, in a way that is co completely confusing, and in a way that, again, I want to just refer to an earlier point I made before, in a way that does not do a service to the um, clarity and legitimacy of our our courts. And, you know, one of the things that's so um, disheartening about Guantanamo and its, its, its confusion on the constitutional issues is that from the very beginning, the decision to step outside of known categories of saying these aren't prisoners of war um, because they don't follow the Geneva Conventions, and so we're going to come up with our own um, rules for them, either secret or visible or both, um, has plagued the system from the beginning. And one of the things that Neil Katyal refers to is pragmatism, is the practicality of getting beyond this Guantanamo moment. And I think that the 
D.C. habeas court decisions shows that nobody's really valuing the idea of practicality, of let's bring this constitutional issue to an end, um, let's decide what's right and wrong for the future, and let's put the past behind us. And we just don't seem able to do that. And I, um, it's a worry, I think, particularly as we're facing a new enemy, which is ISIS. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, John, uh, uh, respond to those points if you like, that yes. it was wrong to create a separate category for the uh, detainees, and then take us forward. Uh, the New Yorker article concludes that if Obama's initiatives to get other countries to take the remaining detainees succeed, they'll leave 10 detainees in military commissions, including the five 9-11 defendants and perhaps 30 prisoners who seem unlikely to win transfer from a review board that's called the irreducible minimum. Obama could conceivably take executive action to order the detainees moved to the U.S. on the grounds that congressional restrictions are unconstitutional, and if the Democrats win enough congressional seats in November, there'll be a brief window between when they take office and when Obama steps down and when they might be able to pass legislation that permits closure. So try to imagine what the future, the immediate future might bring. Yeah, so thanks for giving a chance to just respond briefly. First, I, I don't think that this was a case where the Bush administration or the Obama administration, which still defends these categories, you know, made something up on the spur of the moment. This was, I think, a case where we were confronted uh, in American history by a new kind of enemy that we hadn't fought before, which was a, a non-state actor, but with the power of a country, you know, the power to carry out something as terrible as the 9-11 attacks. And so we had to go back to older historical ideas about fighting, about the world we fought, where we fought pirates or slave traders or people who fell outside the Geneva Conventions. And that's happened from time to time in our history. Um, let me also say something about costs. There are several kinds of costs and to balance here. You know, I, there's the financial cost of keeping Guantanamo Bay open. There's, I guess, this legitimacy cost about uh, doubting our own federal courts, although I, I don't tend to think that's a very strong one. I don't think there's a lot of people who, uh, in the world abroad or here who think that the United States doesn't trust its federal court system by sending people to Guantanamo Bay. I just, I don't, I just don't think it affects our federal court system really and their reputation all that much. It may, people may think, oh, the United States, as is, is, is Karen has said, is engaging in sort of Free, freewheeling international law or is breaking past categories. And I think that is, a, that is a cost. I don't think it's a very strong cost, but it's a cost. But then there's the other cost of uh, what would have happened if uh, the United States had had to use the federal court system, which is what most of the critics of this had wanted to do back uh, in the 2000s, and start using the federal justice system to try to try some of these people, uh, uh, many of whom would have been held under you know people who are caught on the battlefield and were you know, our soldiers aren't there collecting evidence for Article Three court. They're not taking witness statements. They don't have control over, quote, unquote, a crime scene. They weren't using law enforcement officials when they were fighting and capturing people in Afghanistan and other parts of the world. I think this is, that's why we have the different set of rules we have for uh, military capture and detention in the first place, is because the whole point of it is not to try to convict people in court. It's to hold people we think are any fighters. You know, the... There's a, the financial cost is also the case that the United States doesn't want to hold anybody who's not a threat. I mean, I think that's something of a myth that's probably is that, oh, we're holding lots of people at Guantanamo Bay who aren't really al-Qaeda fighters, weren't really Taliban fighters, and don't really, we don't really, we shouldn't be holding. I got to tell you, the, I, the Defense Department and the military, they don't want to be in the business of holding people who aren't real threats to the United States. They want to release people who we may find out did turn out to be journalists or say, or did turn out to be a Red Cross worker or 
weren't really fighting us. So what does the future hold? I guess this all goes to your question, Jeff, in the sense that the future to me means that we are going to need a place like Guantanamo Bay. Maybe it won't be at Guantanamo Bay. Maybe it won't be called Guantanamo Bay. But as long as the United States is going to continue to fight wars against terrorist groups, against groups that are not nation states, that have not signed the Geneva Conventions, that are now carrying out attacks uh, you know, in places like Paris and Brussels and San Bernardino and California and Orlando. As long as we start, as long as we keep fighting these kinds of groups, sometimes we're going to capture them and sometimes we're going to need to hold them. And I think because of that, we're going to have to have a detention center because the Article 3, the federal court system that we're all comfortable with and familiar with, does not fit, does not work for a military, uh, for military detention and, and people we hold as a result of war. That's why we have the whole military justice system. That's why we have this whole military commission. They don't work well. They have been really bogged down. Um, I think in part of that, I, I think part of that is because we haven't run them since World War II. I think part of it is because the federal courts have been quite interventionist, I think, in trying to oversee them. But they have been terribly slow. I mean, I, I was there back in 2001 when they were created. I never would have thought it would take 15, 16 years for them to get up and running, and, and then after 15 years, you still wouldn't have had a full trial uh, and, gone, and one that went up all the appeals. But I think that's a necessity because of the unconventional nature of an enemy doesn't fight by the regular rules. And we're going to keep fighting them. I think ISIS and what, and what has been spawned since is just going to keep that threat there. Thank you for that. Karen, what do you, uh, what's your response to John's argument that there will continue to be some need for a military detention center outside the regular federal court system? And more broadly, tell us what role is there for the federal court system in thinking about uh, proceedings with the military commissions and what are options that are on the table uh, as some are trying to bring the federal courts into the military commission system? Okay, so to the point on uh, detaining individuals who are apprehended in the war on terror, foreigners abroad. Um, you know, since 2008, we haven't brought anybody to Guantanamo Bay. And in fact, our detention policy has basically been to return people where we can to the authorities in the countries where they are apprehended. And so we haven't had much of a detention system in recent years, and maybe John wants to speak a little bit about that um, in a moment. And also, we've, under o President Obama, increased uh, our use of drones as weapons. And so that also has cut down on the possibilities of detention. We're using different tactics. So what exactly the future of American detention policy is, I'm not so sure that the plans are to detain a lot of individuals uh, like we did at Guantanamo, and especially because of, as, as John said, whoever suspected that the military commission still really wouldn't have started 15 years um, after 9-11. Uh, in talking about the federal courts, I want to just say a few things about the military commissions. The heart of the military commissions is the 9-11 case, which is five defendants accused of the conspiracy of committing the acts of 9-11, the attacks of 9-11. Interestingly enough, those individuals were not brought to Guantanamo Bay until 2006, and they were brought there from CIA black sites where they had been interrogated uh, using enhanced interrogation techniques, and they um, 
And when they were brought to Guantanamo Bay, nobody would have foreseen the irony of the fact that, as has been referring to for the past 10 or so minutes, that what may remain at Guantanamo Bay is the military commissions, that it may be possible to transfer all these people to foreign countries and, and, and maybe someday to the United States, to prisons in the United States, that what will remain is the military commission and the people responsible for 9-11 not ever having been tried. And I think all of us are astounded by this fact. So, and, and as John said, the military commissions don't work well. They don't work. And um, after all these years, I think we have to start thinking about other possibilities. And that may be some kind of hybrid involving the federal courts in the um, in the proceedings, uh, which, and, and recently there's been some discussion of having video conferences, video plea deals. There is a possibility that some of the individuals being tried by the military commissions, these high-value detainees, that these individuals uh, will plead guilty. Uh, then, of course, there would be the question of where they'd be incarcerated, but that that's another story. I think the, the elephant in the room here is why these cases aren't going forward. And one of the biggest reasons these cases aren't going forward is the fact of torture, that they were tortured at the, um, at the uh, CIA black site. And it is nigh unto impossible to have a proceeding that is protected by constitutional principles and Article Three court, Article Three like courts, which the military, the military commissions are an attempt in their current form to be as close to Article Three courts as possible. It is so hard to present evidence when it is tainted by a witness being tortured, a piece of evidence being elicited by torture, the detainee themselves being tortured. And this is the stumbling block time and time again. Now, the question of whether the federal courts could handle that better is, is some, you know, is debatable on a theoretical level, but there has been one case of a detainee from Guantanamo Bay who was brought to federal court, who had been tortured at a black site, whose torture was dealt with in pretrial hearings by the judge very effectively. The case went forward. He was convicted. He's spending the rest of his life um, in prison. So it's, it's hard to say that the federal courts don't work for terrorists. This was a terrorist who had been involved in the embassy bombings attacks of 1998, which led to the deaths of over 200 people. That is not a minor um, episode. Um, it was an attack against the United States, the United States embassies, and there may be a gray area between war and crime. And we may have to decide either that we have to, uh, this would not be, you know, what I would suggest, a new uh, entity for something that is neither war nor crime, which is we don't have yet, or really trying to configure our federal court system to do this. Or another possibility would be for international terrorists that there was some kind of international uh, court that could handle these things. But I, for one, really do think the federal courts could handle this. I think the most important thing is to try the 9-11 defendants, that they need to be held accountable, that there is a psychological benefit to that for the American people in getting beyond the era of 9-11. Um, and so I, I think that, that every time we say the federal courts can't handle this, we should think of the other side of this as what does it mean? to actually have people in our custody that we have not figured out a way to try, despite all of our uh, constitutional protections and our democratic principles. Thank you so much for that. 
It's time now for closing arguments. Uh, John, do you believe that the establishment of the prison camp at Guantanamo and of military commissions comported with the Constitution or not? Yeah, I, I, let me say that I think uh, Karen's entitled to her point of view, of course. I'm just glad that uh, neither the Supreme Court, the president of two two different parties, Presidents Bush and Obama, or Congress has ever agreed with that. Uh, every time that the Guantanamo Bay case issue, the whether Guantanamo Bay itself, its creation and its purpose in holding detainees, whether that's constitutional or not, has been agreed to by all three branches of the government and has been upheld as constitutional by the Supreme Court. It's been funded by Congress, which of course must think it's constitutional then, and the president of both parties have kept kept it running. I mean, if it was truly unconstitutional, then neither President Bush nor President Obama should have kept it running. And the reason for that is because of the 9-11 attacks. We confronted a new kind of enemy that didn't fight within the rules. It was neither. They were not criminal suspects, but they weren't fighting on behalf of a nation. They fell into this broader, older category of enemies. And so that's uh, like akin to pirates, akin to slave traders, akin to people who would not fight in the, according to the rules of war on the battlefield. And so we have to hold them somewhere. And that would be Guantanamo Bay. The same thing about the, your second question about the treatment of the people of Guantanamo Bay. I think if you uh, took Karen at, her, at face value, you would think that Guantanamo Bay led to the torture of 800 people. Uh, all the people who've been through there have been mistreated in various ways. I think that's just flatly not true. You know, we could say that there are a few people at Guantanamo Bay who are interrogated harshly by the government and the courts uh, would have to, uh, both the military commissions and the federal courts have to figure out whether uh, to allow that evidence in or not. Uh, that's a handful of people at best or at worst, however you think, uh, the way you want to look at it. But most of the people in Guantanamo Bay who've been there and who are there now are not going to be tried. The purpose of it isn't trial. I think, again, that's slipping into this idea that this is a criminal justice law enforcement enterprise, that people at Guantanamo Bay are being held there to prevent them from going back into the fight. And unfortunately, when we've released them, a quarter of them have been. Now, what does the future hold for Guantanamo Bay? I think, again, not just that it's going to be there, but that uh, critics should be uh, careful what they wish for. We're living through the world of unintended consequences because, because of all of the litigation over Guantanamo Bay. I think what both administrations, both Bush at the end and Obama for his last eight years decided to do was not to capture people anymore. Uh, much easier using drones or aircraft or even special forces, as in the Obama, uh, Osama bin Laden raid, to kill uh, enemy combatants and not even capture them. Now, I think that's terrible for two reasons. One is we're killing a lot more people than we were before. And so if you were someone, I think as Karen is worried about the civil liberties of terrorists abroad, I think it's much worse that we kill them and the civilians around them than bringing, capturing them and bringing them back to Guantanamo Bay. But the worst thing about it, I think, and you're seeing that now in the setbacks that we're suffering with regard to terrorism around the world, but particularly from the Middle East, is that we aren't capturing anybody, so we're not getting intelligence. That's the primary one of the primary purposes of detaining people in war times to keep them from fighting and then to gather whatever intelligence you can from them. Intelligence is the main, uh, is the main ammunition in the war uh, with terrorism. And 
now that we aren't capturing people, instead we're just killing them with drones, we are drying up all the intelligence that we used to be able to get from what was used to what's called human intelligence. And so I think that is the future that a, a new pre, the new president, one way or the other, is going to have to decide uh, to change that trajectory because, yes, it's easier to use drones, but actually I think in the end yields you less result in success against terrorists. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Karen, uh, can you tell us, 15 years after 9-11, do you believe that the establishment of the detention camp at Guantanamo and the establishment of military commissions for the detainees comports with the U.S. Constitution or not? Um, I think that the – those are two different questions. I think that the – that Guantanamo was established intentionally be, to – to be outside of the Constitution, and for that reason, however many constitutional principles are brought to bear on it, it remained essentially unlawful. Uh, I think that the uh, um, individuals who were associated with the military who were on the ground during those first few months at Guantanamo are proof of that, that they felt very much that there was no legal code that they could adhere to, whether it was international uh, or domestic or the military justice code, um, and that therefore it was established extra constitutionally. I think the military commissions have been established with with a constitutional um, authority behind them, but I think that given the unconstitutional activities of the United States government in, in the way they treated those detainees who will be tried before the military commissions makes them nearly impossible to try without um, – under the conditions that are set up by the military commission. So I think it's um, it's not an easy yes or no answer, but, but my bottom line is that we have moved far from the protections of the Constitution and the war on terror, and that Guantanamo is one of the greatest symbols of that, and that the military commissions are an even bigger symbol of that because of the way in which they involve torture. Thank you so much, John Yu and Karen Greenberg, for an illuminating discussion about the constitutional dimensions raised by the Guantanamo detention camp on the 15th anniversary of its establishment. John, Karen, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at ConstitutionCenter.org or me, Jay Rosen, at ConstitutionCenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, and this is important, ladies and gentlemen, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.